This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I saw two stories this weekend that really that really kind of irked me because both of the stories um, I, I kind of felt like there was an example of both of the people that were being featured trying to make themselves victims when I don't think they are. And I'll explain. I'll give you the details of both stories in in just a moment. I was uh, talking about books, though, a minute ago and or a couple of minutes ago. And I was just going to say that to me, the most exciting thing about finishing a book other than, the you know, enjoying the book. And I certainly did enjoy this Robert Greene book. But the exciting thing for me is starting a new book. So I have as the I have a little shelf. I have a lot of bookshelves, but I have one shelf. That represents about 20 books. Any one of these 20 books could be the next book that I read. So it's one of my favorite things to do. I will gather all the books in on the floor. I'll sit on the floor blindfolded. And I will have my wife or someone in the room or just a smart speaker randomly pick out a number between 1 and 40. Or, you know, sometimes it's 30, sometimes it's rarely more than 40. And then I will put all these books in a pile and then blindly count one, put it to the side, two, put it to the other side, three, put it to this side, four, put it to the side. And then when I'm out of books in my initial pile, I restack them and I keep counting. 15, 16, 17. Sometimes you never get there because sometimes the number is seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So this way it adds an element of randomness to what book I'm going to read next. And they're all books that I want to read. But how I, I – it, you know, I'm the worst person at a restaurant, right? Because I, it takes me so long to decide what I want that almost always I just get the specials because it all looks good to me. And that's how I am when it comes to reading books. I, I want to read them all but and I can't decide. I'm paralyzed by my indecision. So I let this element of chance and I have each book is a category that I'll want to read. One is a biography. One is a, 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 pres, a book about presidential history. One is a book about European um, history. One's a book about, I don't know, maybe the Middle East. One's a book about uh, the radio business. One's a mob book. One's a book about uh, gambling. One's a book about, you know, you get it. It's all different subjects that I'm interested in. And each one of these 20 books could be the next one that I read. So I end up picking as the, the from the fishbowl, 
as the next book. I'm going to start reading this today, hopefully. I've been trying to prioritize both reading and exercising more in the new year. The um, the book that I'm reading now or next is Chris Jericho, the wrestler's book, Alliance Tale. I'm a fan of Chris Jericho. I've interviewed Chris Jericho Love Chris Jericho. He still wrestles. He's older now, but he still wrestles. He's my favorite current active wrestler. And um, he's a brilliant man and has a fascinating radio guest, very entertaining, a guy that is very multifaceted. So he wrote this book, A Lion's Tale Around the World in Spandex. I'm excited to start reading it. I just opened the front cover. I see it's signed. Not to me, though. It's personalized to someone named Ed. It says, Dear Ed, Chris Jericho. Now, I don't know where I got this book from. I, generally what I do is, because I do buy a lot of books, I buy them used online. And clearly I bought this book used and never opened it. And this used book that I purchased is signed by Chris Jericho. I, I have a lot of books that are signed to other people. I have a, a Pat Buchanan book that was... Um, personalized to Don Imus, actually, that I think I stole from Imus, but uh, don't tell his estate that. All right. Um, Judge Andrew Napolitano is going to join us in about 10 minutes. There are two quick stories I want to comment on and invite you to comment if you care to. 800-848-9222. One is involving a TikTok lawsuit. We all know what TikTok is, right? It's a social media company that all these young people are addicted to, and um, it's owned by a Chinese company. This is from the New York Post. When Brittany Murphy discovered a distressing post on her 12-year-old daughter's TikTok account indicating thoughts of self-harm, she was beside herself. At first, I was PO'd. I was angry. I was upset. I didn't understand. This is what she told the New York Post. I didn't understand where this was coming from or why she said that or why she posted that. The single mother of three was informed of her post when another mom texted to ask her if everything was okay. I'm like, what? What do you mean? What's going on? Because I'm home. We're all home. That's when Edwards was sent a screenshot of her daughter's post that explicitly stated, quote, low-key going to commit suicide. Now, that's a scary thing. I can't imagine getting that as a parent. It's very scary. So naturally, this woman, this nurse from Hartford, felt overwhelmed and confused. She is now one of 5,000 parents using ClaimsHero.io to sue TikTok, which has been dubbed the big tobacco of the digital age. So if you want to get in on that TikTok lawsuit, go to ClaimsHero.io. So uh, the founder of this group, Kevin Good, explained to the Post, in July 2023, TikTok quietly introduced a provision in its user agreement that requires parents to file a claim within a year of them creating an account or lose their chance at pursuing damages forever. I didn't know that until reading this article, which I thought was interesting. Given this limited window, it's more urgent now than ever for parents and guardians to hold TikTok accountable so families like Britney's can pursue justice for the injuries caused by the most addictive app on the planet. That's a quote from Kevin Good. So TikTok, which I think a lot of people know, is owned by the Chinese internet company ByteDance, also implemented a no-class-action clause. That hinders unity, forcing families to handle the issue individually and leaving claims hero to stand in the gap and mediate the battle against TikTok. So anyway, 
Edward said it's she's been on an emotional roller coaster since her daughter was always an outgoing, happy-go-lucky girl who could light up a room. She was my little shining star. At first, Edwards didn't know her daughter had a TikTok. And when she questioned her daughter, she said she signed up for it on her own with her email and made up a birth date. However, TikTok notes in its Guardian's Guide that the platform is only for those aged at least 13, and this young lady wasn't. Edward's conversation with her daughter about her troubling post started with some yelling. I didn't know how to react. I don't know if I would take back the way I reacted because it was natural. I was scared. I was confused. I don't know if I was maybe if it was maybe just a trend she was trying to follow to fit in or if she honestly really felt like that. Just me thinking about if she was actually uh, to go ahead and do this and act this out, then I don't know how I would be able to take it past that. So there was a technical investigation from Amnesty International which found that young people who watch mental health-related content on their TikTok for You page were being recommended rabbit holes of potentially harmful content, not dissimilar from the conversation we had last hour with Michelle DeMarco, including videos that romanticize, normalize, or encourage suicide. And that's from Amnesty International. And I think this is just, I think this is just, uh, just terrible. Absolutely terrible but when we get into the issue of tiktok addiction miss edwards talks about her daughter using social media innocently making dances and participating in viral trends but then edwards noticed that the more her daughter t- spent time on tiktok the more she was withdrawn from everyone quote as she continued using it daily she would watch videos that had cursing in it or inappropriate dancing, and just everything that wasn't suitable for her age, in my opinion, in terms of sexual content, drug use, everything that I feel wasn't for her. As she continued using it daily, she would watch this. At that time, I would hear it and say, no, change that, put on something else, or what are you watching? And she would flip through it, but every time that I would catch her, it was always the same thing. So the thing that I wonder here she's now part of this lawsuit against tiktok and i recognize that screen addiction is a real thing and that they design these videos and these apps to be addictive and you know thankfully miss edwards said her daughter's doing better she's now going to therapy but here's what i wonder at what point when your child is on TikTok hours and hours every day. Do you not basically say, okay, no more TikTok. I'm deleting the app from your phone, and if I find that you are still using it somehow, I'm taking away your phone. Done. Lee Cardinal, 49-year-old mother in Chico, California, is among uh, the, the you know is among the people that's part of this lawsuit. She said her now 15-year-old daughter went into a dark space with anxiety and depression for several years, which coincided with her scrolling TikTok for hours. Why are you allowing your teenager to use TikTok for hours? And again, maybe this is me never having raised a teenager. And not being prepared to deal with the level of teenage recalcitrance, but I was a teenager and I was stubborn about a lot of things. And you know what would happen when I would get in trouble? My parents would punish me. They said, you're not allowed to do that. Sometimes things I really enjoyed. I think 
Look, I think this what TikTok did here is so shady, and I have a lot of problems with TikTok that go even beyond this. I think they do a lot of things very poorly, and I'm not on TikTok. That being said, I think a lot of these parents here, and I'm glad you know that nothing happened to Miss Edwards' daughter, obviously, but a lot of these parents need to look in the mirror and say, I allowed my child to watch hours and hours of online video on a social media platform that uh, whenever it's talked about in the media, there's some reference to the dangers of that. Now, I'm not trying to be insensitive here, and I recognize that a lot of these kids probably are addicted. But do the parents bear some responsibility for this? I think they do. 800-848-9222. There's another story that I saw, which is a little bit more salacious, but I think it's kind of in the same ballpark. I'm going to bring that to your attention a little bit later. But first, I want to chat with uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano, who's kind enough to stay up late with us. And I know he's not necessarily always a a night owl. So uh, let's talk with Judge Andrew Napolitano about the legal news of the day. And then a very salacious tale of someone, I think, trying to make money by profiting off of their own decisions. I know that sounds weird. You'll get what I mean in a bit. Judge Andrew Napolitano, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. With crime running rampant in New York, you need to keep yourself and your family safe. Obtaining your concealed carry firearm licenses can be difficult and time-consuming. That's where MyFirstPistol.com comes in. They'll help you secure your concealed carry license. If you're looking for a pistol, premise, rifle, or shotgun license, call 347-559-7052. 347-559-7052. You must have a valid firearm license issued by the NYPD to purchase, possess, or shoot a handgun or pistol in NYPD. I see. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Very, very pleased to be joined by one of my favorite guests. No, just really one of my favorite people. You know, the big problem that I see with the 21st century media landscape, and when I say the media, I mean old media, television news, cable news, radio, even a lot of talk radio stations. I'm not talking about independent media and sort of the new media that's being birthed. But the problem that I see is you have, for the most part, a bunch of people who all share the same opinion 
interviewing people that share those opinions and speaking to those that also share those opinions. You watch MSNBC, for instance, you will see people that believe standard Democratic talking points, interviewing people that believe those same things, speaking to an audience that also believes those same things. People get into these media bubbles. Same thing on Fox News. Very, very few exceptions anywhere in the media except for our next guest. Not only is he a brilliant constitutional scholar, not only is he a former New Jersey Superior Court judge, I think the youngest in history, not only the former Fox News senior judicial analyst, but these days he's the host of the Judging Freedom podcast. And whenever he's on television, whenever he's on radio, you may find yourself agreeing with his analysis or disagreeing with his analysis the one thing you can't say about him, though, is that he isn't genuinely independent. No matter what station he goes on, when Judge Andrew Napolitano pops on to radio or TV, you know you are getting the unvarnished truth, at least from his perspective. And uh, we could use a little dose of truth these days. Judge Andrew Napolitano, it's so great to have you back on the program. Oh, Frank, thank you for that uh, generous introduction, my dear friend. You're, you're pretty independent yourself. God bless you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's amazing I've uh, been able to hang on to a job, that being the case. But uh, both very, very lucky, very lucky, thanks to uh, John Catapetides. Hey, I, I want to uh, pick your brain on a few different legal issues. Um, let me begin. I know this may sound silly to some folks, but I think it's such an interesting case. With this uh, Alec Baldwin situation where he's been uh, he's facing this charge of involuntary manslaughter as a result of the shooting that took place on uh, this film Rust. Now, regardless of what people think about Alec Baldwin, either as a performer or as a person, and I'm sure people have varying views, it does seem a little odd to a lot of people that Alec Baldwin's being arrested and charged for following the instructions of a cinematographer who told him where to point a prop gun and that he had no reasonable expectation to think was loaded. I mean, do you think Alec Baldwin could have a real problem here? Well, the law in New Mexico, which is the same in most states, it, it is in New York, New Jersey, uh, and Connecticut, where the folks primarily are who are listening to us now, is that the person that pulls the trigger is responsible for what comes out of the barrel, no matter what has preceded that. So even though um, the, the, the defense that you've articulated would be a defense if this were a civil lawsuit, mm -hmm. uh, he would pass the blame to the person who materially, substantially, egregiously, and erroneously misled him as to whether the weapon uh, was loaded. But that is not a uh, defense in a criminal case. In the criminal case, liability, criminal liability is in the hands of the person who pulled the trigger. So criminally in New Mexico, he had the duty to be certain uh, that that uh, a barrel was empty or that what was in there was just, you know, the, the equivalent of a starter's pistol, something that just made noise but didn't didn't propel anything. On the other hand, um, I think that his uh, pattern of relying on what she said to him would probably move the jury uh, pretty strongly in his favor. I hope so. Uh, regardless of his politics, you know, I work with a lot of people that can't stand him. 
but that's sure. not the, that's not the standard. The standard is that he have a, a culpable criminal mind, and I don't believe he did, and and I hope he's acquitted. Well, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. It's uh, fascinating to watch. All right, let me ask you about a handful of the three dozen Trump legal cases that have now dominated the news cycle. Uh, let's go to Georgia. There probably are. I lost count after three dozen. Let's go to Georgia in what a lot of people were saying was the toughest case for Trump, because even if he's elected, he can't pardon himself if he's convicted and he can't simply pull the plug on the prosecution. It really seems like the D.A. in Fulton County, Fawny Willis, could have a problem here. It's been alleged, and she so far hasn't denied it, that uh, she appointed a lover of hers to be the special prosecutor and then paid him around $700,000 in public money for this prosecution of uh, this case. What happens here? Um, what is, does the future hold for this case, and what does the future hold for Fawny Willis? Well, let me ask. Let me answer about the case first. I, I don't think this affects the case at all, with the uh, possible uh, exception of delaying it a little bit. If she and the boyfriend, uh, who was a, a prominent lawyer in Atlanta named uh, Nathan Wade, if she and Mr. Wade uh, are removed from the from the case, there are two types or two categories of prosecutorial misconduct. One is personal misbehavior uh, by the prosecutor, which uh, questions the prosecutor's judgment or credibility. That's this category. The other is uh, misbehavior that affects the case, like they bribed a witness or they Mm -hmm. uh, hid some evidence that is uh, beneficial to the defendant. That latter category could affect the case, but that's not what this is. This is just her personal behavior, and it's in the what were you thinking category. Hiring your boyfriend and then going on a a trip with him? The the defendant is one of a former president, but also one of the most aggressive and notorious characters in the country when he thinks people are after him, and he's going to go for your jugular and humiliate you. Um, so in my opinion, even though this is a, a a gift horse for Trump, because he will use this adroitly as only he can uh, politically, uh, I don't believe that this will affect the case at all, as I said, with the possible exception of delaying uh, the start of the trial date. Now, as for her, I, I think she's finished politically. I don't mm-hmm. know that she's going to lose her license to practice law. Is this uh, an ethical violation. Well, if she did this in order to get some sort of a benefit, like whatever vacations they went on, well, then it is a serious ethical violation because she used taxpayer dollars to benefit herself. If the uh, trips that she went on were just, you know, they would have gone on them anyway, uh, then um, I think it looks bad and she has a lot of uh, credibility issues, but I don't think she's done anything. Uh, anything wrong, but you but at least nothing your, your boyfriend uh, to a or girlfriend, as the case may be, to a public uh, position like this uh, really is is highly inappropriate. I don't know that she have enough credibility to run for election. Remember, she's like Alvin Bragg here in New York City. She is popularly 
uh, elected. So she has to face the uh, voters over this. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with Judge Andrew Napolitano, legal scholar par excellence, best-selling author, news analyst, and the host of a terrific podcast, which I make sure never to miss, and I learn a great deal from. And uh, you could check it out for yourself at judgenap.com. That's judgenap.com. Judge, yesterday uh, we were told that uh, President Trump may end up testifying in the uh, damages portion of the trial for the E. Jean Carroll civil suit. Looks like that's delayed because of a sick juror and one of uh, President Trump's attorneys is also a little under the weather. Where do you see this going, this E. Jean Carroll uh, damages portion of the case? One, is it wise for Trump to go forward with testifying? And two, where do, what kind of damages do you think Trump is looking at here if uh, once the jury ultimately does make a decision? Okay, so E. Jean Carroll is the lady that uh, sued Trump under a a statute that the New York State Legislature enacted, which opened up the statute of limitations for uh, adult survivors of uh, sexual assaults, no matter how long ago uh, they happened. Mm -hmm. So she came along and sued Trump and said in in the early 90s, he raped her uh, in a a dressing room at the Bergdorf Goodman uh, department store in Manhattan. Um, Trump Uh, at the time he was sued, was the president of the United States, and he made some negative comments about her, which basically said, I never heard of this lady, never met her, it didn't happen, she's a liar. Um, She then added to the lawsuit account for uh, defamation on the basis of what uh, Trump said. Trump asked the Department of Justice to defend him in the defamation part of this complaint, because he was the president of the United States at the time he made the statements and was at a press conference on the White House grounds. And the DOJ hemmed and hawed and then decided that they would defend him. Um, and then uh, the trial judge said, well, no, he, he was the president. He was in the White House, but this had nothing to do with the presidency. So he's not immune and he doesn't get the DOJ to protect him. Uh, That was appealed to a federal appellate court, which upheld the trial judge. So that took four years during the for for the appeal to be resolved. During those four years, the case against him for the rape went to a jury in lower Manhattan before the same judge. He had a superb A plus trial lawyer, uh, one of the best cross examiners in the business by the name of Joe Tacopina. Sure. Uh, Joe in my opinion, did a superb job, but the jury believed her for the most part. So uh, Trump was found that he did not rape her, but that he did sexually assault her, and they awarded her $5 million. That's on appeal. Trump has posted a bond, meaning he's, he's purchased an insurance policy that ensures that there's $5 million, and if, if Trump uh, loses the appeal and doesn't pay the $5 million. The insurance company pays it, and they go after Trump. That's the way that policy works. Now, uh, the defamation part is going to be tried, and the issue is what damages did she suffer, not as a result of the sexual assault, but as a result of what Trump said uh, on the ellipse outside the Oval Office. It was literally outside on the driveway part of the White House. Um, Joe Tacopina, who I admire dearly, 
was criticized for not putting Trump on the stand during the rape allegation. Uh, a lot of people felt that Trump should testify. A lot of people felt that Trump should not. Look, we all know what Trump is like. He can sure. be very persuasive, but he can also go off on a tangent. Uh, so they decided it was dangerous to put Trump on. He never set foot in the courtroom and obviously didn't testify in the jury. Uh, apparently was offended by that and clobbered him on uh, on the uh, judgment of five million. A lot of money for anybody, even him. So now uh, the different team of lawyers representing him have decided he should come in the courtroom where he's already been, and he should show the jury his respect for them, and he should testify. But this is not whether he defamed her, and this is not whether he assaulted her. This is just how much money does he owe her? The court has already found as a matter of law that he defamed her. So there's very little that Trump can testify to because the only issue before this jury is how much did she much? suffer? What is her loss of reputation and other suffering worth? She has already testified to how she has suffered. Uh, she will put experts on the stand who will testify to equating loss of reputation to uh, a dollar uh, figure. Uh, so I don't know what Trump can actually testify to, but I believe his presence in the courtroom, if he behaves himself and doesn't get in a fight with this judge, who's a no-nonsense judge, um, his presence in the courtroom can only help him. Well, it's going to be very interesting to see where that goes. So uh, what sort of figure do you think we could be looking at here? Do you think Trump could be looking at another $5 million judgment, yes, less, yes, more? Yes, I do. Yes, mm. I do. Uh, they all know who he is, and they all have a, a, a seal for what he's worth. Uh, huh. You know, in some of these cases, uh, the plaintiff, that's uh, Ms. Carroll, uh, is entitled to show the jury the financial worth of the defendant, because you got to know who you're punishing. You know, are you punishing somebody that's worth a hundred dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, or worth three or four billion? If it's three or four billion, the punishment's going to be more. Obviously, now five million bucks is a lot of money to anybody, whether you're Donald Trump or King Charles, sure. absolutely, uh, or just a guy on the on the suppress stand outside the courthouse. It doesn't matter. So, I don't think they've gotten to that point yet of Trump's worth, uh, but they might. The The plaintiff is still putting her uh, her case on the stand. Um, the documents are now all public as to Trump's worth uh, because they all came out in a, in a courthouse up the block from this one where the case was just tried against the Trump organization and the case is, is replete. These are public documents now. Uh, with documents about the Trump organization and Donald Trump's uh, worth. So the jury will have a good handle on what he's worth. So if they decide uh, that he should compensate her again, they're not deciding if he defamed her. That's already been resolved by the judge. They are only deciding what that defamation is worth. It could be zero or it could be some gargantuan number. We, we don't know. 
I, I know it's late and I'm going to let you get to bed in a moment, but I, I got to ask you a couple other quick questions uh, related to Trump. And then one uh, one issue unrelated to anything Trump, at least directly. The 14th Amendment cases uh, trying to disqualify Trump for the from the ballot. Obviously, Colorado went uh, the direction they went. Maine, where Trump actually won two electoral votes in the last two presidential elections. They've decided, at least for the time being, not to allow him on the ballot. Supreme Court is going to hear this case. I kind of thought this was one of those rare cases that you'd see the conservatives and the liberals unite and throw this case out and say, of course, Trump has to be on the ballot. I was surprised uh, when I interviewed uh, George Washington University law professor John Banzaf a week or two ago, who I think you know, who's a pretty straight shooter. He said he could actually see a scenario where the Supreme Court could decide that states do have the right to throw uh, Trump off the ballot. What's your read on this case, Judge? And what do you think, knowing the kind of leanings of all the current justices, where do you think the Supreme Court goes on this? You know, this whole argument was started by three conservative Republican law professors who are apolitical. These are not people that hate Trump. Sure. And they wrote an article in the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. It's about 130 pages long, replete with historical examples of people being uh, thrown off the ballot without due process, meaning without a trial. And they started this whole debate. In Colorado, this is bad for Trump. There was a trial. He didn't take it seriously. He sent lawyers there that were not first rate. They did not produce witnesses uh, as to what Trump was doing on January 6th. Uh, They did not call their client. Uh, They only produced historians, historians on the meaning of the word insurrection. That trial went on for three or four weeks without a jury. The judge in that case found that an insurrection occurred and that uh, Trump aided and abetted it, but that the 14th Amendment, because it doesn't mention the presidency specifically, does not apply to the president. The Colorado Supreme Court accepted the factual findings of the trial judge that an insurrection occurred and that Trump abetted it, uh, but disagreed with her and said the 14th Amendment obviously applies to the president because it applies to all officers of the United States, and the president is an officer of the United States. That issue is before the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court of the United States must rule on this because Minnesota, which has one of the most liberal Supreme Courts in the country, ruled the opposite of the way Colorado did. So even though I know and respect a lot, a high high regard for Professor Banzoff, I disagree with him because this is the U.S. Constitution. It cannot mean different things in different Mm -hmm. states. The state constitutions are unique to each state. State laws enacted by state legislatures are unique to uh, its state. Something may be lawful in New Jersey and unlawful in New York and vice versa. But when you're talking about the federal constitution, it has to mean the same thing. So the Supreme Court, in my opinion, is morally and constitutionally obligated to tell us what the 14th Amendment means. Now, by that, I mean does the, does the person whose name is, is being struck have to have been convicted 
of aiding and abetting an insurrection, or if there is any evidence of it, is that good enough? The problem is the history of the 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. And the history of the 14th Amendment goes like this. It was enacted in 1868. It has a lot of great clauses in there. But this one was put in there to keep former Confederates, whether they were soldiers or whether they were officials of the southern states, from uh, entering the federal government. So they would say, for example, oh, Frank Morano, he wants to run for Congress. We saw him in a Confederate uniform for right. six months. He can't run. That was good enough to keep you off the ballot in 1868. <laughs> but as we got through World War One and World War Two, and entered what we consider the modern era of American jurisprudence, we are a lot more respectful of due process. So to use you as an example, Frank Morano, well, we would have to prove that he, not because not we saw him in a uniform, it could have been a Halloween costume. We would have to prove it to a jury that he aided or abetted uh, an insurrection before we can strike his name from the ballot. So the Supreme Court's going to have to say, what is the standard in 2024, not in 1868, but in 2024 for applying the 14th uh, Amendment? Now, the Supreme yeah. Court has already ruled that the states cannot add to constitutional requirements. So there's only four requirements to be president natural-born citizen, 35 years of age or, or older, lived in the U.S. for 14 years prior to running, and did not participate in or aid an insurrection. Those are the only requirements. The states can't add any requirement. Can they interpret those requirements? In my view, no. Hmm. In my view, only the federal courts can interpret with authority what those uh, requirements mean. So the Supreme Court has to rule on that and tell us what the 14th Amendment means in all 50 states. Do you have to have a trial? Does the person have to be convicted? Or is this hearing that they had in Colorado that Trump didn't take seriously, is this enough? Right. Uh, well, no, I mean, that's very clear and makes a lot of sense to me. And it's one of the reasons I'm glad I only wear a Confederate uniform in the privacy of my own home and no one's seen me in that Confederate <laughs> uniform out and about. Uh, last last Trump question, Judge. And we've been talking with Judge Andrew Napolitano. Uh, check out his website, JudgeNap.com. Um, the president's lawyers have uh, made a pretty broad claim regarding immunity. And the pre President Trump himself went a bit further with this on uh, Truth Social when he said a president of the United States must have full immunity, without which it would be impossible for him to properly function. Any mistake, even if well-intended, would be met with almost certain indictment by the opposing party at term's end. Even events that cross the line must fall under total immunity, or it will be years of trauma trying to determine good from bad. There must be certainty. What do you make of this uh, Trump claim of total immunity, even for events that cross the line? Uh, I think it's, um, it's not consistent uh, with due process, and the court will uh, reject it, and they pretty much ruled that way in the U.S. Uh, versus Nixon cases. 
uh, he is entitled to what's called absolute immunity uh, for exercising the functions of his office. So one of the things he did was to dispatch drones to kill a, uh, an Iranian general who was going to lunch in Iraq, uh, attempting to discuss peace between Iraq and Iran. Uh, some say that's an act of murder. Others say it was uh, an act to diminish Ir- Iran's ability to attack uh, the United States. He cannot be prosecuted or sued for that. Whatever it was, murder or um, uh, defense of the U.S., it was within uh, the scope of his uh, of his uh, office. Uh, the issue is, was whatever he did or didn't do on January 6th within the scope of his office. Now, here's where it gets a little dicey. Whatever he did or didn't do is a question of fact, not law. And facts in American courtrooms are decided by jurors, not by judges. So a, a trial judge is going to have to hold hearings, hold a trial and then say to the jury, if you find that the defendant acted within the scope of his office, then you will stop your deliberations and find him not guilty. If you find that he did not act within the scope of his office, then you will proceed to answer the other questions on this juror uh, interrogatory about whether the state has proven him guilty uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the way I would resolve it. In my opinion, uh, after that terribly absurd argument that his own lawyer made, which made the lawyer the laughingstock of the legal community for a week, uh, that Trump could uh, order SEAL Team 6 uh, to kill a political opponent and and he couldn't be prosecuted afterwards. That's absurd. Um, I think uh, Trump is going to lose in the appellate court. I don't think the Supreme Court will take the case. I think as soon as he loses... Uh, in the appellate court, it's going to go right back to the trial court for trial. Uh, lastly, sir, on the international front, and I hate to end with such a heavy subject because, you know, you have a good sense of humor and I love joking around with you, but there's nothing funny at all about this. Uh, we're watching what's happening in the Middle East and around the world in general, and we see at the International Court of Justice, uh, South Africa is accusing Israel of carrying out genocide in Gaza and demanding that the court order an emergency suspension of Israel's military campaign. Well, just in the last day or so, Mexico and Chile, they've expressed growing worry over uh, an escalation of violence, and they've asked the International Criminal Court to look at war crimes uh, committed by both Israel and Hamas, as I understand it. What do you see happening there with respect to war crimes on either side and any action by the International Criminal Court, Judge? All right. So there's two different courts here. One is International Criminal Court which actually prosecutes people, and when they're convicted, punishes them, incarcerates them. Um, that is a treaty signed by every country on the planet except for Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, and the U.S. Ah, oh, we're in good company. Uh, good company. Uh, the international... A court of justice is a court of the U.N., and that has jurisdiction over all um, countries that are in the U.N. 
Mexico's in the U.N., Chile's in the U.N., South Africa's in the U.N., the U.S. is obviously in the U.N., and so is Israel. But that court is basically toothless. It mm-hmm. can't punish. It doesn't have an army uh, to enforce its decisions. So if the uh, ICJ, the International Court of Justice, decides that Israel is engaging in uh, homicide, in the genocide, uh, it will issue an order, and Israel, like any other country, would thumb its nose at the order. However, internationally, it will isolate uh, Israel. Israel, in my opinion, is already losing the PR war. This will be the coup de grace on the PR war. What Mexico and Chile are talking about is getting the ICC to indict Benjamin Netanyahu as it's indicted Vladimir Putin uh, for uh, war crimes. And George Bush, Uh, right? Correct. George W. Bush, believe it or not, cannot travel outside the United States. There's a, it it sounds absurd, but it's true. There is an EU, European Union wide um, arrest warrant for George W. Bush. Um, so, I mean, he knows that he's aware of it. He still gets Secret Service protection. He doesn't leave, he doesn't leave the U.S. Uh, so, Mexico is talking about going after BB personally. South Africa uh, went after uh, Israel as a country. Understood. So, these are two different standards. In the ICC, in the International Criminal Court, uh, there is a trial, there are criminal trials. Um, uh, Milosevic, some of those uh, Slavic, I forget what country they're from because they, they broke up the Yugoslavia into so many different countries. But some of those guys uh, uh, were arrested, tried, convicted, and are serving life terms in prisons in Northern Europe because they were convicted by the ICC. So this is a real court with real teeth if they arrest you. If they mm-hmm. don't arrest you, if they're not going to arrest Putin, I mean, they'd have to He'd have to go to a country and lo- at where, where they can arrest him. He'd be crazy to do that. If they did arrest him, he would be tried. But until they arrest him, they're not going to try him in absentia. Now, uh, what judge- will happen in the International Court of Justice? Uh, I think Israel will lose. I think South Africa made a compelling case. Wow. Uh, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, wh- where that goes. Do you have any idea of the timetable for that? Do we know that? Uh, they indicated the, that a decision would come down before the end of this month. So we've got two weeks wow. left. Wow, okay. All right. Uh, fact, Judge we Napolitano. Were a decision, we're expecting a decision today because the U.N. suddenly canceled what it was doing today, uh, but it, uh, it didn't come down. So that decision will be t- taken to the Security Council. Uh, and then the Security Council will be asked to ratify it. Now, the U.S. is not the Security Council, so the U.S. will veto that veto, decision. Right. The U.S. has a veto. So there are 15 members of the Security Council. The vote will be 13 to 1 to 1. U.S. will say no. Great Britain will abstain. All the others on the Security Council will uphold this decision. Whatever it is that Israel did commit genocide or that it didn't. Judge, we're going to have to end it there. I always appreciate your time. It's always a treat to talk with you. I always learn a great deal whenever we speak. Thank you. When I learn about a really good talk show host, even if it is the middle of the night, every time I hear your (laughs) voice, Frank, God love you.
<laughs> Judge Andrew Napolitano, check out the Judging Freedom podcast. You can go to judgenap.com or just find it on YouTube. Hey, if you want to comment, and I'm sure a lot of you do, on uh, anything the judge had to say, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. Caribbean Queen. I'm going to get to your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I'm going to hold that more uh, salacious item that I uh, that I teased until the top of next hour because I don't want to I don't want to deny people the opportunity to talk about it. Now, let me share with you. You know of my difficulties in with, with Wikipedia, right? I think I should have a Wikipedia page. A listener, very nice guy, was kind enough to create one for me, but they denied it. They they deleted it because they said there wasn't proper attribution or something along those lines. So I think even though I'm mentioned in, I think, at least 20 other Wikipedia articles, the gods of Internet reading have decided that I am not, you know, important enough to have a Wikipedia page. So anyway... I get this email yesterday. Subject, this is on my personal email. Subject, Wikipedia page moderator. It's from a person named Oliver Jackson. Dear Frank, my name is Oliver Jackson, and I am a Wikipedia moderator and editor with a strong commitment to maintaining the high standards of accuracy, neutrality, and reliability that Wikipedia is known for. I wanted to bring to your attention an important matter regarding your live Wikipedia page. Your Wikipedia page has been tagged and nominated for deletion due to concerns regarding its compliance with the Wikipedia guidelines. I'd like to offer my assistance in helping you successfully publish your Wikipedia page on your behalf. I'm fully aware of Wikipedia's guidelines and can work with you to ensure that your page meets the necessary criteria for approval. And then if you're interested in pursuing this matter, would like to discuss the details, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm trying to figure out if this is a scam. Is this someone that wants to get paid to edit my Wikipedia page? Sounds that way. Keep asking questions. 